if you were at the conference the last uh, yesterday, I think we were very well convinced that we're living in a world that is that is anything but friendly to the Christian faith at this point. For the past 30 or 40 years, the Church of Jesus Christ in America has been able to get away with kind of doing church in cultural ways and kind of sliding by with a little bit of truth here and there, but mostly with an entertainment philosophy and a, and a consumer-oriented, you know, how are you serving me? What, what fancy things does our church do? One of the things that suffered in American evangelicalism over the past few decades has been women's ministries in churches. And what they've turned into essentially is just fluffy gatherings that have no bearing on life where there's no truth presented and it seems to be that the only thing that really has in common with the church is that they meet in the church building. When we first came to Grace a number of years ago, we said that's not going to be the case here. It used to be that the Church of Jesus Christ, women's ministries included, could sort of go along with the culture and you could kind of live your church life on Sunday and and still have your worldly life and kind of those two kind of floated together. Well, if you would picture now the, the truth of sound doctrine, the truth of the Word of God as a tree that is just has sunk its roots down in deeply into the ground, and now the ground all around it is threatening to be eroded by what we talked about yesterday, by critical race theory, by the, the cult of forced mask wearing, the cult of forced vaccines. All these things are now making us have to grab a hold of that tree. And if you picture yourself as almost being pushed off a cliff and you have about five seconds to tie a rope around yourself and tie it to that tree, a lot depends on how firmly planted that tree is, isn't it? And so we don't have time to mess about anymore. To that end, our women's retreat coming up March 24th through 26th is on the theme of firmly planted. And it's going to be a serious time because you need to be serious about your faith. I, I have um, kind of reserved the privilege of myself of being the speaker at our women's retreat every year. And we're going to do five messages on being firmly planted theologically so that you won't get blown over by all these things that are happening in our world. Where you're strong, where when the, the rope that's tied around you is secure, you know that the roots won't come up. And so that's our theme. If you're uh, able to go, we would love for you to, to sign up for that. There is something different about getting away for a couple of days and hearing the word of God. Um, probably the biggest thing is different is without children. That's helpful. But they're, because of space limitations, they're going to close the signups on February 20th. So if you've been wondering whether you should go, can I tell you you need to go? No woman has ever come back from that retreat saying, I just feel overfed the word of God. That's, that's never happened. So I want to encourage you. Um, Sylvia and I are looking forward to being there and getting to spend that time with you as well. So you have a couple more weeks to get signed up and I encourage you to do that. Now you may notice that uh, our bulletin is slightly off on what I'm going to preach today. We took a little time out last week to honor our brother Tim who's gone home to be with the Lord. And so we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're actually, uh, the passage behind that, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, and so you can start turning there. 
And while you're finding 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, I noticed yesterday both Phil and Daryl spoke for like an hour and a half at one shot. I feel so free right now. It's just unreal. (laughs) No evening service tonight, so we have time. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Follow along with me. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's go to the Lord for just a moment. Lord, this is a a very serious passage. It has to do with the infiltration of the church by false teachers, false teaching. And so we come to this with a sense of sobriety and seriousness. We would ask you, Lord, to guide our thoughts this morning. To help us to hear the word of God, the word of God alone, not the word of a man. We pray, Lord, that our intentionality in the church of Jesus Christ would only grow. We pray that you would strengthen us in the faith, that we would be firmly planted, firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So I'd like to, this morning, kind of begin in earnest our series I introduced a couple of weeks ago. And it's a series we're doing in preparation for our move to the White Lane facility, and it's one we're calling Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. And in 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6, we're going to examine really the practical outworking of all the theological instruction we've gotten in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we've just come off kind of the mountaintop of 1 Timothy, the pinnacle, the theological center Chapter 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so now we've come off this mountaintop with a commission, with a mission, that we have a truth that we're to uphold. And the truth that we're to uphold is the gospel of Christ rooted in and grounded in the person and the work of Christ. This singular gospel is a gospel based on the holiness of God, first of all. That God is utterly distinct, completely separate. He's completely pure he's perfect the singular gospel is also a gospel based on the unholiness of mankind as opposed to the holiness of god that we can't possibly hope to approach his holiness because we're sinful from the very beginning and so our our communion has been cut off because of sin sin for which the wages is death only This singular gospel is a gospel based on the redemptive work of Christ. That since God is holy and mankind is unholy, God has provided a mediator, one who is both God and man, one who would 
pay this rightful penalty for sin to God on behalf of man. None other than the God-man, the Son of God, Jesus. And this singular gospel is a gospel based in the faith given to a man or given to a woman as a gift from God by which he or she may believe and be justified and receive the free gift of salvation and now be reconciled with God. Not just made right judicially, but reconciled in relationship with God. It is a pure gospel. It is the pure gospel of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is the pure gospel of Titus 3 that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is the pure gospel of Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And this is the pure gospel that we know so clearly from Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this is the pure gospel of Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But this gospel has an enemy. An enemy that would infiltrate the ranks of the church around the world. And that enemy is Satan. And we begin to see why Paul is so adamant that the church be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That we carry this truth in our hearts and our minds. And he begins chapter 4 with this logical conjunction now. And what this shows us is that chapter 4 isn't really a, a hard and fast start to a brand new section. It'd almost be more convenient if that number 4 wasn't there. That's not in the original text. That's something added later just to help us know the address, how to look up scriptures. It's not a new beginning. It's, it points us back. It points us back to the true understanding of law and grace and salvation in chapter 1. Through chapter 2, verse 7, it points us back to behavior and the leadership in the church. In chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 13, it points us back to the right perspective on the weightiness and the purpose of what Paul is teaching in those three verses I just read at the end of chapter 3. This section just continues by pointing out that the problems that were outlined in chapters 1, 2, and 3 can't be ignored. And at the top of the list of that problems, the very top, the root of all problems in the church, false teachers and false teaching. False teaching comes from many sources. It can come from the pulpit of a church. It can come from the latest psychological fad that makes its way into the pulpit of a church. It can come from a so-called Christian bookstore. I say so-called because bookstores can't get saved. So... It can come from our own bookstore if we're not careful. It can come from Bible study leaders in the church. It can come from one-on-one discipleship in the church and it spreads like fire. But the fact of false teaching is what Paul begins warning the Ephesian church about. This church that Timothy is now serving in. 
And in their case, the false teaching was right in their own ranks. It was among their own elders. In the Ephesian church, there were basically four groups. First of all, there were true believers in Christ determined to stand for the biblical gospel alone. We would hope and pray that was the majority group. There was a second group, though, rebellious false teachers. Our text here will indicate some of them are unregenerate, completely opposed to Christ. At the end of chapter 1, we saw Alexander and Hymenaeus. They're handed over to Satan by Paul to teach them not to blaspheme. They were elders in the church. We might make the case that they are believers who went astray. It's hard to tell, but it's possible. So you have true believers in Christ. You have rebellious false teachers, most or many of whom were unregenerate. You have a third group, church members, who began to follow after the false teachers, eventually showing that they were unregenerate as well. Because they'd rather go after lies than after truth. And then you have the fourth group. The one that breaks my heart. True believers being tossed around spiritually and confused by false teachers. I love this fourth group. I get emails from this fourth group almost every week. From some of you saying, I just read this such and such a teacher. Just read this book. I'm confused. I'm tossed around. What's the antidote? Ephesians 4, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, that's doctrine, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here it is. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All four groups existed in the Ephesian church. No wonder Paul sent Timothy to straighten things out. Understanding the gospel is absolutely necessary because the church, we're not warning about that it might be infiltrated. The church is infiltrated. Jesus already said that there will be tares that grow up with the wheat. In a room this size, no possible way every one of you are regenerate. And so I preach to all four groups, potentially. But the church is the battleground for the truth. Do you, you notice that the world or Satan couldn't care less what the Sonic Hamburger Company thinks about God? They don't care. They don't care what Winco thinks. But they do care what the church thinks because the church is the only one carrying the truth. And so if the truth can be infiltrated, then progress is made in Satan's kingdom. And so understanding the gospel is so important because it prepares us to take a hard look at what it is that will come against the truth of the gospel, and that is false teachers. Apostates who lead other false believers away from the true gospel and who at times confuse and spiritually undermine even true believers for a time. And from our text here that I've read to us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, we're not going to talk about the gospel so much as five reasons to understand the gospel. So I want to give you some reasons to understand the gospel. We'll do five of them. Just taking the, the tone of sobriety and seriousness from our text here. The first reason to understand the gospel, the Holy Spirit's warning of false teachers. The Holy Spirit's warning of false teachers. 
Paul says that the Spirit of God expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Now, first of all, what are the later times? What is that speaking of? Well, we know that Paul sees Timothy and himself as already being in the last days. This phrase speaks of a very specific period of time, what Paul calls in 2 Timothy 3, 1, the last days, the last times. This is the time inaugurated by the coming of Christ and extending until his return. I put it this way, it's the last era of human history before Christ receives the entire church to himself, before he pours out judgment for seven years and then returns. It's the last era. And so just as Paul saw himself in the last era, the last epoch, the last days, all the more do we see ourselves in that time. We have 2,000 years of history under our belt now. So we should put last days in all caps for us. And the Spirit has said that some will. There is guaranteed to be those who depart from the faith. In fact, this Greek word here, depart, we get our word apostatize. To turn away from the faith. It refers to active rebellion against God. And in fact, the verb is in what's called the middle voice. They do it to themselves. It's an inward, real desire to depart from the faith. It reveals their true heart as having been unregenerate they were never saved in the first place what does this mean it means it's entirely possible to fool oneself into believing that you're a christian or worse as the implication is here to fully know you aren't a christian and yet play the part john confirmed the falseness of their original so-called conversion in first john two nineteen. they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And that's heartbreaking. I've seen this as a pastor. And you say, surely not so-and-so. Surely not this one. Surely not that one. Someone who seems to desire to serve the Lord. Someone with whom maybe you've had long, deep conversations about the gospel. Things of God. And yet they ultimately apostatize. They depart from the faith, the body of truth that is in Christ, the knowledge of the truth that leads to genuine salvation, that truth of which the church is to be the pillar and the foundation. But Paul tells Timothy not to be surprised by this. He says the Spirit expressly says this. It's a word that means explicitly, clearly, unmistakably. He said this is going to happen. Now, this might be a little bit discouraging here because you're, you might be looking for some cross-references and he doesn't give one. He doesn't say where. So let me make a couple of suggestions. Because Paul doesn't specify when or where the Holy Spirit expressly says some will fall away from the faith. First of all, keep in mind the, the audience here. The first reader of this letter is Timothy. According to 2 Timothy 3.15, Timothy's mother and grandmother taught the Old Testament to Timothy. So Paul can make this blanket statement. He can say, the Bible says this is going to happen. And Timothy understands that already. The Old Testament prophet Daniel certainly said this. Daniel 7.25 speaks of Antichrist trying to change, quote, the times and the law to manipulate the word of God for his own ends. Jesus certainly warned of this. Matthew 24, 4 and 5, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. 
In Mark 13, 22, Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The apostles got this message as well. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Let no one deceive you in any way. 2 Peter 3, 3, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. We're going to come back to that in a moment. 1 John 2.18, John said this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Jude 18, they said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And so those are all possible times that the Spirit has said expressly that false teachers will come. But in relation to the exact situation that Timothy found himself as the apostolic representative sent to Ephesus to right the ship, to get things going in the right direction, Paul had already predicted this through the Holy Spirit to the Ephesian elders themselves just a few years earlier. Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, has been absolutely clear that the church must be wary. And we do so by presenting the Word of God in all of its glory. Why why is it important we present the Word of God? Because what we're in here is a battle for minds, a battle for truth. As much as I enjoy emotional preaching and as much as I enjoy preaching emotionally, the preached Word of God is not about stirring up your emotions. It is about teaching your mind so that you know the truth. Consider this. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We're in a battle for minds. In our own world, we see false standards of righteousness being erected, replacing the one perfect standard of righteousness, God himself. We're being inundated, we're flooded, we're being absolutely overwhelmed by false standards of righteousness right now. There's a wave of indoctrination happening at a lightning pace. The idols of forced masking, which is the the religious garb of the new religion. Forced vaccines. Forced critical race theory indoctrination that we talked about all day yesterday. All these things which are quickly becoming a false standard of righteousness. And you've already seen this. Satan is conscripting legions of people who fancy themselves the prophets of these false standards. Who yell at you when you don't conform, when you don't submit. Let me ask you a question. How is it that a 15-year-old boy in 1930 could be working on his father's farm in Germany? For all he knows, his goal in life is to marry the girl who lives at the farm next door and to take over his father's farm and to raise crops and to raise sheep, and to be a regular citizen. How is it that a 15-year-old boy 
can work in a small German town in 1930 in his father's little hometown business and and be trained and and groomed to take over this family business. And for all he knows, he's going to marry the girl next door and have babies and have grandchildren. And that's his goal in life. How is it that those boys, in a matter of 10 years, can go from taking over the family farm or taking over the family business to being able to shoot or gas thousands of naked and starving Jews in internment camps? Because the battle for their minds was won by Satan. And these men genuinely thought they were doing right. Our culture is headed down that same road, apparently. Three weeks ago, a recent poll by Rasmussen Reports indicated that 59% of Democratic voters favor requiring non-vaccinated citizens to be confined to their homes 24-7. 48%, half of Democratic voters, think that the government should fine or imprison anyone Did you hear that? Imprison anyone who questions the effectiveness of COVID vaccines in any public forum. 45% of Democratic voters believe the government should place unvaccinated people in designated camps or facilities. What's the obvious next step? It is to cost the lives of those who won't bow. It's already happening. 31-year-old father, heart transplant, patient denied his transplant because he's not vaccinated. Another man was just denied a kidney transplant because he's not vaccinated. The world is defining a new standard by which you either get to live or die. And now churches are buying in left and right to this. This is madness of separating people based on skin color, based on vaccination status, based on whether or not someone has bought into this new one world religion of forced compliance. You understand what's happened in the last two years. It wasn't just that, well, there's COVID and unrelated, there's a critical race theory. Unrelated to that, there are riots in the streets. Unrelated to that, it's defund the police. Unrelated to that, there's this and that. It's all a frontal attack from all directions at once. It's the same thing. Comply to a false God. And so we have to teach the word of God because it's the only source of divine truth, of divine revelation. There is no other way. The Holy Spirit said these days would come. And so we have to have a firm grasp on the gospel. This is not a game. This is life and death. There's a second reason to understand the gospel. The demon's influence of false teachers. The demon's influence of false teachers. Second half of verse 1, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, whatever superstitious or mythological view of demonic activity you may have heard about in popular culture or read in cartoons, the Bible makes it very clear what the primary weapon of demons is. It is content. It is teaching. They teach doctrine. That's why it's called the doctrine or the teachings of demons. They give content that is false and they fool the masses with it. They're deceitful and they teach. They teach that which is contrary to the gospel. They do so through false teachers, through human agents. Verse 2 says that. These are fallen angels that are behind all false teaching. The head fallen angel, Satan, deceived Eve. 
And Paul was even wary of this. He said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Timothy 2.26 says, It is the snare of the devil that brings this teaching. The primary weapon of demonic activity is falsehood. It is deception. And so when it comes to gospel issues, to the truth of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Christ at all costs, it's imperative that we, we understand this isn't, this isn't just a friendly difference of opinions. It's not a different way of looking at things. It's not something where we're trying to find middle ground with unbelievers. There is no middle ground with unbelievers. What does darkness have in common with light? Any gospel other than the gospel which says that we are reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, any gospel other than that is the direct influence of demonic activity. And so what do we do? We wield in return the truth, the sword of the Spirit, We wield the weapons of prayer and of personal holiness and righteousness and of sound doctrine so that we're firmly planted. We're not blown over. We're not fooled. There's a third reason to understand the gospel. We'll call this one the real loyalty of false teachers. The real loyalty of false teachers. Now, you might say, well, if they're demonically influenced, then we, they're not responsible. We should feel sorry for them. We should meet them halfway. We, we should have pity on them. As far as their eternal souls go, absolutely, we have pity on them. But make no mistake, their loyalty is very clear to them. Look at verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What do we have here? We have three qualities of a false teacher. Three qualities of a false teacher. The first quality is they're insincere. We get a word you might know from this. Hypocrite. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody who knows one thing but does another. There's no ignorance there. We would know this Romans 1 beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's no ignorance. They know the truth. They suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his divine power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Let me put this in simple terms. Anybody steps outside in the middle of the night, out in the country and looks up, must say in their heart, somebody made that. It takes suppression of the truth to say some little thing blew up a billion years ago, and made all that. That's suppression of the truth. It takes suppression of the truth to believe that a human being came from an orangutan. That's suppression of the truth. People don't even believe that Mazdas come from orangutans. They, what, what, how do you get a Mazda? Somebody made it. They don't even believe that. There's not ignorance here. They have enough what is called general revelation to know that there is a God, there is a creator, and we are accountable to him. So they're insincere. So don't think that they're just misled. Second quality of these false teachers, they're liars. 
They're liars. There's a compound word here used only here in the New Testament that means that they give a false word. It, it speaks very clearly of a knowing deception, not an ignorance of the truth. They've heard the truth. They choose to stand against the truth. One way we know they've heard the truth is that almost without exception, false teachers use the Bible. They read the Bible. They study the Bible, not to hear what God says, but to manipulate the scriptures for their own wicked purposes. What's been the number one manipulation of scripture in the last two years? Love your neighbor and do what the government says. They're liars. They're insincere. There's a third quality. They have a seared conscience. They have a seared conscience. Now, there's two possibilities here that are, are, are somewhat contradictory But it's sort of like saying, would you like to go to the hospital by falling out of an airplane or falling out of a building? It doesn't make any difference. The end result is the same. But let me give you the two possibilities here. What does it mean to have a a seared conscience? One possibility is the figurative sense that their consciences are burned or seared and they're no longer, their consciences don't work. That does fit well with the concept of the hardened heart in the New Testament. But it doesn't quit fit quite as well with the concept of being a hypocritical liar who knows the truth and yet suppresses it. The other possibility of a seared conscience is the non-figurative sense because it literally means to be branded, to be owned by somebody, to be identified as owned, branded. This is a reference to the ancient practice of branding criminals or runaway or disobedient slaves, defeated soldiers, social outcasts. This is the idea of ownership, that they're branded with ownership by Satan. In fact, the verb here is passive. Someone else is doing the branding. They claim to be from God, but they're not. That also fits the description of hypocrites. It's the description of an unbeliever. In either case, whether it's a conscience that's burned away and non-functioning or the branding of Satan, so to speak, You clearly can't appeal to their conscience. You can't appeal to logic. They are by nature illogical. And so you fight that error with divine truth and divine truth alone. I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but the New Testament shouts warning after warning after warning after warning. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 11 says that those who refuse to love the truth and be saved... Verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. This strong delusion is sent, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, by Satan, but ultimately God is the cause. They refuse to believe. 2 Peter 2, 18 warns us that false teachers, quote, entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They appeal to your desires, to your lusts, to what, what makes you feel good, your lust for power, your lust for self-exaltation, or more commonly today, your lust to feel you have higher power, you have this exalted knowledge. If you listen to a sermon and you walk away going, wow, that was so profound, I didn't understand a word, it means it was probably not right. The word of God is meant to enlighten you, not confuse you. But it appeals to the lust of that higher knowledge. The second Peter 3.17 warns us to take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. The Apostle John, we sometimes call him the black and white apostle because everything was either all good or all bad to him. Very easy to tell where he stands on every issue. 
that he gives a very simple measure for true believers versus false believers. 1 John 4, 6, he says, We, meaning the apostles, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. That's the apostles' teaching. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Translation, if you believe the Bible, you're in. If you don't, you're out. There's nothing in between. Paul warns of those who claim a great mantle of spiritual authority. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the so-called guru of infectious diseases, you may agree or disagree with him on numerous medical issues, couldn't care less. But perhaps lesser known about him is he has a very deliberate, intentional effort to make his way into the church of Jesus Christ. He's had significant meetings with the leading ministers of black churches to convince them that COVID treatment priorities are inherently racist and that everybody should be mad about that. In March of last year, he attended and led what was called a confidence event at the Washington National Cathedral with leaders from Protestant churches, Catholic churches, uh, Jewish synagogues, and Muslim mosques to tell them, quote, as a believer and a scientist, I can see the opportunity to use the tools of science as a chance to be part of God's plan for healing. He says the vaccine is an answer to prayer. Now, we said yesterday, remember how important it is to define terms? He says, as a believer, in what? He doesn't define that term. The point here is not whether COVID vaccines are helpful or not, but they're being touted as a legitimate part of faith in God. In June of last year, Dr. Fauci, along with the First Lady Jill Biden, visited the Baptist church where both of them spoke and urged the church, quote, People in this community trust this church. We need the community of faith to reach out to their congregations so that they come forward and be vaccinated. In other words, you go as the church and tell people what to do. Set up a false standard of righteousness. This is not just a guy in Washington. This is a guy trying to make it into the church and he's being pretty successful. This is the bride of Christ that's being tampered with. And so the church, what do we do? How do we fight that? Keep your Bible open at all times. You be watered continually with the life-giving truth of Scripture so that we may influence with the truth and the truth of lo- alone. Let me, let me put it to you this way. This is something that many here in Kern County can relate to. Let's use the illustration of firearms. Yeah, you can learn to shoot a gun. You can go to a range and say, yeah, I think I got this down. And you can put it in your drawer. And for five years, you can say, I remember how to do that. That's way different than knowing that in a week, somebody's going to try and break into your house onto your property. What are you doing then? You're at, the, you're at the gun range then and rounds are flying all over the place because the repetition of the defense is important. The repetition of the truth is important. I don't care anymore if you've heard the same sermon I'll preach it over and over again because you need the repetition of the truth. Amen? We must understand the gospel. There's a fourth reason to understand the gospel. The man-made standards of false teachers. The man-made standards of false teachers. What were Paul's readers going through? Verse 3. 
They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, just to be really clear here, recreating the doctrinal problems present in the Ephesian church is an entire study of its own. In chapter 1, we saw the problem of teaching myths as truth. We saw the problem of the misuse of the law of God. Uh, There were Jewish elements to the heresies. They were overemphasizing the law, underemphasizing faith. There were problems with what's called religious syncretism, trying to combine elements of faith in Christ with previous elements of pagan worship, including, by the way, the practice of magic. There was a problem with what some theologians call overrealized eschatology. What does that mean? 2 Timothy 2.18 tells us that some were teaching that the resurrection had already happened and the ones teaching it were the resurrected ones. We're the super spiritual ones. You just need to get in line and follow because we have knowledge you don't have. But along with those things, what we see here was a problem that we would call asceticism. It looks like asceticism, but it's spelled A-S-C-E-T-I-C-I-S-M, asceticism. Asceticism was sort of a cafeteria approach to using the law of Moses. I'll take a little of that, a little of that. Using Gnosticism, the belief that that some have this higher knowledge of spiritual things that others don't have, to create kind of a new law. And this new law was all based on one premise. That is that God-given physical blessings are bad and spiritual things are good. This denial of physical blessings was steeped in the already popular writings of Plato. He taught a form of dualism that invisible things are good, they're eternal, but the visible and the physical is evil and temporary. Paul's already said this. This is what Paul said to Titus in Titus 1.5. To the pure, all things are pure. What does that mean? If you're in Christ, you can enjoy a dish of ice cream and you can enjoy the heavenly thoughts of Christ, which, are, which is invisible to us right now. You can enjoy everything. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Translation, nothing you can see is redeemable. These man-made standards of righteousness based in Platonic philosophy and drawing wrongly from the law of Moses included some of the things we have listed here. Abstaining from marriage. Abstaining from marriage because marriage is is physical in nature. Paul's already rebuffed this. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul counseled single people to stay single only if they were gifted to do so. 1 Corinthians 7, 8. Later in this very book, in 1 Timothy 5, Paul will counsel young widows to remarry, partly to keep them from making a nuisance of themselves. Solves a lot of problems. Abstaining from marriage. This is a doctrinal error that cult leaders and false versions of Christianity continue to make. See also the Roman Catholic Church. If you're a priest or a nun, you can't get married. This forbidding of marriage also naturally included childbearing. No having children. This makes Paul's statement to women back in chapter 2 make a lot more sense. 1 Timothy 2.15, yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's not that having children provides spiritual salvation, but it was evidence that you were saying na 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 to all the false teachers and doing what the Bible commanded. You're obeying Christ. And again, Paul instructs young widows in chapter 5 not only to remarry, but to bear, to bear children. 
So you have abstaining from marriage. You have childbearing that is, is restricted. And then you have dietary restrictions. It's likely that these dietary restrictions were taken from the Old Testament law, attempting to use parts of the Old Covenant to keep believers in, in bondage to a modified man-made version of the law. And we still have that today. Whether the two laws we always want to carry forward, Sabbath and tithing, right? Those are Old Covenant, not New Covenant. The basic instruction of the false teachers was that certain foods are inherently wrong and less spiritual. Now, they couldn't forbid food altogether because that presents a problem. Everybody's going to die. By the way, this had nothing to do with nutritional value. If you're saying, well, if they forbid Twinkies, I guess that's not all bad. Had nothing to do with nutritional value because there was no such thing as junk food. Everything you ate came from the ground. It had to do with the teachers maintaining spiritual power and control by making laws that were outside the realm of the new covenant. I want you to keep that phrase in mind, new covenant. We'll come back to that. Just to give you some insight into what Timothy was up against, remember that the Ephesian church wasn't one big group that met in one big building. He couldn't just stand up. Timothy couldn't just stand up and preach one big sermon to correct all this. Paul sent Timothy as his apostolic representative to the church at Ephesus, which met in various places, various homes, all still under the authority, the umbrella of the apostles in this era. So not only did Timothy have those four groups, he had them meeting all over the place. What a mess. I I wonder if there's a a, a third Timothy somewhere uninspired in which Timothy has written to Paul saying, thanks a lot for this assignment. But I would like to paint a portrait of these false teachers Leaders, elders in the church who have gone off the rails. Remember the key word in verse 2, insincerity, hypocrisy? Here's the hypocrisy of these false teachers who are making all these restrictions, who are legalistic, who are teaching everyone else that they needed to beware of the physical blessings on earth. Here's three ways the hypocrisy came out. First of all, their prohibitions against certain foods did not include wine and strong drink. Why? Almost every major scholar on this topic agrees that the asceticists did not forbid drinking alcohol because most of them were drunks. They were heavy drinkers. That was a worldly pleasure they wanted to keep. Did you notice something as you've gone through 1 Timothy? When Paul gives Timothy the apostolic standard, God's standards to be an elder, did you notice in 1 Timothy 3, 3, that an elder cannot be a drunk? Did you notice in 1 Timothy 3, 8, that a deacon cannot be a drunk? Now, I want to be very clear, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul isn't just talking about, here's how to qualify future elders. What he's talking about is, here's how to get rid of the schmoes who are there now. So, Timothy could ostensibly gather all of them, say, you, 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 and you, you're a drunk, you're out. And re-qualify others. Paul was giving Timothy some qualifying ammo to dislodge some of the false teachers. There's a second way the hypocrisy of the false teachers came out, and that's in the area of money. There isn't any direct evidence about what the false teachers said about money, about the accumulation of wealth, but we do get some clues. 1 Timothy 6, 5, they saw their false godliness, quote, as a means of gain. They were greedy to turn their sensationalist, elitist teaching into money for themselves. Paul says they're depraved and they're deprived of the truth. These same sorts of men were giving problems to the churches on the island of Crete as well. Paul warned Titus in Titus 1.11, they must be silenced. 
since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. There's another clue we get because the church at Ephesus did have faithful shepherds who took time to study the word of God and to rightly divide the word. But it's very apparent that the greedy men didn't want to be generous with those truly deserving the financial support for their hardworking preaching and teaching because Paul has to advocate for them. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, that is money, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. In other words, those who actually do the study and aren't making stuff up like these other guys are. And so just like the drunkenness issue, Paul gives Timothy a means to root out bad elders and false teachers. 1 Timothy 3.3, an elder cannot be a lover of what? Money. And in fact, he gives a positive admonition for those with more wealth than others near the end of the book. And it's, it's harsh. He says in 1 Timothy 6.17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. There's a third way the, false, the hypocrisy of the false teachers came out. I'll bet you could almost guess it. We have, we have wine, we have money. What do you think a third one will be? Women. Women, here they are forbidding marriage, which by definition forbids sexual activity. And yet in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he warns about these false teachers taking advantage of emotionally and spiritually vulnerable women, seducing them for their own pleasure. 2 Timothy 3, 6, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. There it is in the Bible. They are the original creepy guys. No wonder Paul tells Timothy that to be an elder, you must be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. Wine, money, women. These guys are frauds. And yet these hypocritical teachers, what was their character? 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21 says, these teachers profess to have a secret and higher knowledge than others. They were elitists. They were elitists. Now, what can we learn besides the obvious lesson to be careful who leads the church here's what i would have you learn beware of anyone teaching or bringing a false ideology because there's always a selfish and proud motive behind it always jd greer the outgoing president of the southern baptist convention preached a scathing sermon last year in which he said that anyone who opposed him is demonic who is opposing him. Greer made it very clear that the church should welcome transgenderism. He made it very clear that he believes churches are filled with closet racists and neo-confederates, he calls them. In other words, he's buying into the culture, and if you disagree with him, you're demonic. Do you find that ironic based on 1 Timothy 4? What does that mean? It means there's a new standard of righteousness that to be right before God, now you bow to false laws, false ideologies brought to us by unbelievers. That's at the tip of the spear of today's attempts to infiltrate the church and what's, what's the motivation? There's no way to be a successful president of the Southern Baptist Convention because the job description is please everyone. And you can't. May God raise up a man who will say, I'm going to please God and everyone can do what they want. That's the only thing that'll help. 
but his motivation, and he said so is, in, in, in many publications, is the desire to please the masses, to roll the dice and do what makes the most people happy. That's a selfish, wicked motive. Remember how Paul began the letter? The true motive of a genuine shepherd, 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Sincere. Well, let me finish up with a fifth reason to understand the gospel. We'll call this one the deception of false teachers. The deception of false teachers. What is it that they're doing? What, what is the deception? Verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now Paul is narrowly speaking to the, the specificity here of the dietary restrictions, which were a very common stumbling block in the first century church. But as the inaugurator of the new covenant, Mark seven nineteen, Jesus declared all foods clean, all things available. The law of Moses expired at the cross. So what's the simple answer to this daunting legalistic set of rules that the false teachers have, had given? Well, very simply, verse 4, everything created by God is good. That's the answer. And in fact, there's two major and simple to understand reasons to, to reject asceticism, to reject legalism of all kinds. The two major reasons here, first of all, God's intention for his creation to be enjoyed. And second, the believer's prayer of thanksgiving. God's intention for his creation to be enjoyed and the believer's prayer of thanksgiving. And in fact, Paul gives a one, two, three, triple dose of both. First of all, God's intention for his creation to be enjoyed. The middle of verse three, God created food to be received. Verse four, everything created by God is good. Verse five, it's made holy by the word of God. The very fact that after creation, God said it was very what? Good. And you get a triple dose of the believer's prayer of thanksgiving. The middle of verse 3, foods received with thanksgiving. Verse 4, received with thanksgiving. Verse 5, made holy by prayer. Why do you thank God for your food? Because it's an acknowledgement that your nourishment came from Him and is given as a gift by Him and received with thanksgiving. Listen very carefully. I told you to keep the phrase new covenant in your mind. Received with thanksgiving implies that thanking God for the food, you're doing so because of the new covenant. That you're not under a law. That you're free in Christ. It's made holy by the word of God. You're free from the law, which is death. The law has a purpose. It condemns. But grace doesn't. Our thankfulness for even our food is founded in the basis of the new covenant in Christ. By the way, it's why, that's why it's ridiculous for an unsaved person to thank God for food. Why is that ridiculous? It's ridiculous because they're thanking God for food while refusing to come to saving faith. Yes, in God's general grace, He provides food for everyone, but He provides salvation, and that's much more important. It's like somebody breaking into your house and getting into your refrigerator and saying thank you as He walks out. Paul makes this simple to understand. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what is the error? What is the deception of the false teachers? We've already touched on it. You probably know this already. All false teaching is a denial or misuse of God's word. All of it. All of it is. This is why Satan can use biblically illiterate churches 
and why you and I must be about the business of knowing the truth of the gospel and all its implications. If you would indulge me, just one more thing here. Colossians 1.28 gives us our purpose statement as a church. Him we proclaim. That's the center of the gospel. If you can get a church off concerning the word of God, you get them off concerning Christ. You separate them from the singular source of knowing our Savior. So what's the solution? The solution is the person of Jesus Christ. Just peruse with me very briefly. 1 Timothy 1. We're just going to rifle through this. 1 Timothy 1.15 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ came to save sinners. Verse 16, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him. We believe on Christ to receive eternal life. We don't believe on a set of rules. Chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus Christ is the only mediator, not some false teacher, not somebody interpreting for you what is some sort of higher knowledge. And why is he the mediator? Chapter 2, verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. Chapter 3, verse 13, the second half. That we have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Our confidence is in Christ, not in our ability to follow a man-made system Chapter 3, verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Christ's life, his victory, his glorification, all at the core, all at the center of our faith. Chapter 4, verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith. Chapter 4, verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Christ is the Savior of all who will be saved. No one is saved by following some sort of addition to the gospel. Skip to chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Christ is the singular authority through his word. And just how elevated must Christ be above all? Chapter three, chapter 6, rather, verse 13. Here's how elevated. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who made his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the infiltration of the church, we run to Christ. We cling to him. We cling to his gospel. I'd like to have the Apostle John give our closing exhortation because there are two choices. John said in 2 John 9 through 11, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The other choice, and this is my prayer for us as a church, it's my prayer for you. The other choice is to be part of those that John spoke of in 3 John 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's what I hope for us. I lost track of how many churches have gone off the rails in the last 18 months. Not here. Not as long as we have anything to say about it. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, keep us true. Keep us delighting in the Word of God, this warm fire of truth ever burning before us. Keep us delighting in our King of kings, our Lord of lords, the Savior of all who would believe the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be faithful week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, Bible study after Bible study, Sunday school after Sunday school, adventure club after adventure club, to open the Word of God and hear from you and you alone. May you shut our ears to the voices that would deceive. We pray for those, Lord, who are, have become the instruments of Satan. We ask you for your mercy and your kindness. But in the meantime, Lord, protect your church, protect your bride, keep the bride unstained. We pray for our little representation of the bride of Christ here, our little swatch of cloth in the, the wedding dress of the bride, so to speak. Keep us white as snow, purified, loving Christ, obeying in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, our grandchildren, our workplaces, that we might be the fragrance of the gospel to the world, pure and unstained by these things that would come against us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.